Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Hey, thank you so much. Um, I hate the formal introduction. You know, it's, oh, who cares about this guy writing in magazines or whatever? I, I wish I could just have the introduction be that uh, Dan Matson is just a regular guy who really likes craft beer. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have an award from a brewery um, as the friendliest patron. Very, <laughs> I'm, I'm very proud of that. More, more proud of that than my college degree, I got to be honest. Took a lot more work, but it was all of it was very enjoyable. <laughs> so it's great to be here at Steubenville. You know, I, I I got off the plane and I had nice dress pants on and I had a sport coat and all this stuff. And Robert said, "This is more casual." So I'm like, I think I need to start talking to colleges more often. <laughs> you know, I, I I wrote this book and then I get invited to speak and I'm like, what do you wear at these things? Well, who do I look to? Dr. Scott Hahn. <laughs> You know, he's, got the, he's always got the well-coiffed hair, and I don't have that. <laughs> but he's, he's dressed well in the tie, so I, 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 um, I try to model myself after Doc, Dr. Scott Hahn in some ways, but you won't hear about Covenant at all tonight. LAUGHTER <laughs> I just thought of that. That's kind of. <laughs> so it's great to be here and with, with all of you in this wonderful place. And I, it's a gift to be here. Uh, I, I've just, I became, I came back to the Catholic Church in 2009 and you start hearing about these different things. You start hearing, the University of Steubenville, University of Steubenville. Oh, it's like, it's like a Mecca now. It's like a pilgrimage. <laughs> And I've actually come here now to the, to the source and summit of, of Steubenville. <laughs> it really is the summit, isn't it? It's, it's remarkable. I, if I was in college here walking up that hill, I would not look like I do today. I, so it's like you've got a built-in aerobic system there. So what I want to do, I want to tell you what I'm going to do tonight. I want to talk a little bit about my story. I, I, uh, I never expected to be doing this sort of thing. Uh, I never wanted anybody in my life to know about the fact that I was attracted to men. I wanted to keep it secret. Um, but the funny thing is God often asks us to do things that we never want to do. And this is one of them. And I'll tell you what, I am uh, happier doing this than I ever, ever imagined I could possibly be doing. Because I know I'm doing what God has asked me to do. So I want to tell a little bit about my story, uh, my conversion, the, what, what it's like what it was like for me, at least, growing up with these attractions. And then I want to talk about just some practical things about chastity, um, how I have struggled. I am a chastity speaker, not because I am a saint. I am a chastity speaker because I have failed miserably at the virtue of chastity. And now, by the grace of God, I see how I need to tread that path. So I'm, I'm a chastity speaker as somebody who really screwed up and find comfort and peace and guidance in the, in the Catholic Church. So this isn't theoretical. This is practical. And I also want to talk a little bit about the beauty of our sexual identity, 
the beauty of what it means to be male and female, made in the image and likeness of God, and how that applies to a man like me. Well, I want to go back to a, a moment in that I, I, is seared in my memory when I was about 15 or 16. I was evangelical this time, and uh, I'll get back to that in a moment. But uh, I, I went to, our family would often go to restaurants after church. You know, we had this long sermon. Well, we, we, I built up an appetite anyway. And so we go there, and, and uh, I, I walk in there, and I see the sound guy. The sound guy is there, and he's all by himself. And I was suddenly just flabbergasted and appalled because he was eating there alone. He was this middle-aged guy, and he was bald, and he was portly, kind of chunky, and eating alone. And I remember praying to myself, dear God, may that never be me. <laughs> well, I'm middle-aged, upper middle-aged. I'm going with middle-aged anyway. <laughs> I'm bald. I'm rather portly. And I live alone, and I often have meals by myself. And I'm happier than I've ever been. What I, I think about that moment, I prayed, I thought to myself, this is the worst possible future that anybody could have on the face of the planet. That poor sound man at my, my, my Protestant church. I, I, he would probably be horrified that I thought that. But I that was the worst fate imaginable, imaginable to me. And here's the funny thing about people. We can only ever imagine being happy the way we've ever imagined we could be happy. Right? How did I imagine? How do you imagine yourself being happy when you're close to 50, like me? Well, I thought it was the way my parents lived their life. I thought to myself, I got to get married, have some kids, have the picket fence, have the dog. Right? That's what I thought. Well, I was confronted with an obstacle to that in, in junior high. Well, adolescence hits, right? Well, what happens then? For me, I realized that I was attracted to the boys at school more than the girls. Now, I had some attractions to girls. In the fifth grade, there was a cute girl named Melanie, and we dated for about two days. <laughs> and I, I always had this idea, of course, that I'm going to get married. I always dreamed for that. When I was in junior high, I'd babysit the neighbor's kids. I, always, I wanted to be a father. Uh, my, my younger cousins, I just love them. I always thought, this, is, this would be great to be a father, to have a wife and a family. Well, there was that obstacle that, that, that came into my life. And in junior high, I struggled with it. Now, I, I am old enough that I didn't really have a word for that. I didn't have a word. It wasn't suddenly, oh, this means I'm gay. Now, you, you guys, anybody that is, is your age now, you're inundated with this division of the world of gay and straight. Back then, I really hadn't even heard the word gay. I didn't even know what it meant when I heard it. But imagine a kid when they're 12 now, and as soon as they have an attraction to the same sex, what do they think? This must mean I'm gay. What it means, certainly, is that they're not straight, right? Maybe they're bisexual. But the pressure that that put, puts on a child is, is an unfortunate consequence of the world's thinking on this subject. We're going to talk about this at the end. But for me, I just thought it was an obstacle for my sense of happiness. And as adolescence went on, I kept praying to God. I said, dear Jesus, can you take this away? And if not, 
can you uh, at least bring into my life a woman that, that I could care for and, and share my life with? So as, as high school went along, I, unfortunately, I ran into pornography. And I became addicted to pornography on a camping trip. And, uh, you know, I never thought that I would be telling a bunch of college kids that I was addicted to that. But I'll tell you what, 1 Peter 3.15, St. Peter says to us, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And I know many of you here are addicted to pornography. It's a common plight of this world. Now, when I was a kid, it took work, more work than this, right? I had to find it, and I found places that would sell pornography to a high school boy. And eventually, instead of looking at both men and women, I started just focusing on the men. And what happened, why was that? Well, I had a lot of rejection from girls. Uh, you know, that, that two-day relationship in the fifth grade, I was always looking for more than that, but I was always relegated to the status of, of the, the friend, not the boyfriend. You know, I was very popular. I could make people laugh. I was class president three of my four years in high school. Um, but, oh, Dan, Dan is so, uh, he's such a nice guy, but I don't think I really want to date him. Well, what did I notice? I noticed that the people, the guys that they went out with, they were the athletes. They were the, the basketball players. These are all the people that I, I wasn't. I remember um, I, in the eighth, in, when I was eight, in the third grade, I did Little League. You know, that was, that was just a major league nightmare for me. You know, it was a disaster. It's like, you know, all these guys, the, the coach, the, the jerk dad, that's, what are you doing there? You know, you're, you're hitting the ball like a girl. Well, that is not the right thing to say. Now, if you were gonna toss a cookie at me, I got cat-like skills. <laughs> but you get me behind that bat, and terrified, I've just felt this pressure. Every time I was at the bat, I just felt I'm gonna freeze, I'm gonna fail, and I did. I, you know, kickball in, the, in elementary school, I was picked after a lot of the girls, right? And so I, I felt at this very young age that somehow I wasn't meeting up to whatever was out there as a sign of what boys are supposed to do. And in high school, athletes, or gym class, forget it, I hated it. What I was into was band. I played the trombone, and I was pretty good at it. So good at it that when I was a senior in high school, I was named by the Detroit News as the outstanding graduate in Michigan in music. Out of 33,000 students, I was top dog. Now, this got me thinking. When that, the prom came along, and I, had, I felt this pressure to ask somebody, even though I was attracted to, to boys, there was still some hope and some glimmer of attraction for girls, and there was that pressure to date. And I thought, well, maybe my prowess at the trombone will impress some of the girls in the band. <laughs> and maybe ask me out. So remember that, that uh, girl in the fifth grade, Melanie? I decided to ask her out again. I said, hey, Melanie, you know, I don't know, do, do, do guys text dates for the proms? I don't know how, it would, it would have been a lot easier for me if I could have done that, but I steeled my resolve and, and I said, hey, um, are the proms coming up? Will, will, you, will you go out with me? And she said, you know, Dan, I'm, I'm flattered, but I hear that Chad's gonna ask me out. Will you be willing to wait till I hear from Chad? Oh. I know. 
I, I know in that she's just a horrible person. <laughs> no, she's, she's a wonderful person. But uh, you, can, you can guess where this went. She actually went out with Chad. Well, Chad was the captain of the, bat, the, the, the uh, football team. I know. <laughs> so sad. After talks, I, the, I, I, after these talks, so oftentimes, these women line up, can I just give you a hug? <laughs> I said, sure, I'll take a hug. <laughs> it's not all that bad. At the time, it was horribly painful. Because what, what did I do? I, I thought to myself, well, this, this means everything I've ever thought about myself, right? I, I'm not worthy. Women don't find me interesting. They don't find me worthy, you know? And what that did is that caused me to doubt who I was, made in the image and likeness of God with this great creative gift on the trombone. I actually make my career, uh, I have a career as an orchestral musician. I had a rehearsal this morning in my orchestra back home, and uh, I flew out here, and I got to go back, and I got to play a concert tomorrow night. And uh, I've been doing that for 20 years. I've played Carnegie Hall. I've, I've done a master class at the St. Petersburg Conservatory in Russia. But I'll tell you what, yeah, I'm good. I'm really <laughs> When I was in high school, I would have traded all of my skill on the trombone so that I could have been on our Class D really bad basketball team. This is, I had so many doubts about my self-worth as a man. But of course, that's universal. That is not solely a, a, an issue that that I, as someone with same-sex attraction, has to deal with all of us. We doubt our self-worth, right? We always are looking at other people, thinking, if I was just like that person, or like him, or like her, or somehow different, my life would be so much better. And God has helped me to see that, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made the way I am. But I couldn't see that then. I was so distorted. I was fil filled with all these lies. And pornography fed those lies. And then that suffering that I had after, after, after she said no to me, well, I, I was just devastated by that. So when I went to college, I, got, I, I, I said, well, I'm just going to forget about dating. I'm going to put all my energies into the trombone. And uh, like I said, I was good. And I was so good that when I was a junior in college, I got invited to play at the Epicott Center at this All-American College Orchestra. It was a great summer gig. Now, I really didn't have much attraction uh, toward, towards women at all at this point. But I still clung to this belief that God could move mountains, that he could bring somebody into my life. I, I had my favorite verse was Jeremiah 29, 11. Maybe some of you know that. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It was such a favorite verse of mine that when I was that class president before I left for college, I convinced my, my classmates to put it as our class verse. I was Protestant. And what we would do is we, the seniors would have a class verse in the gym. And that's where, so all those basketball games where I was envying all the guys on the court, I saw that behind there. And I clung to that with hope and thought, God can't answer these prayers. So there I am at Epcot Center a few years later. And turns out there's kind of a cute trombone player, a woman. Let's just make that clear. And I found myself surprised to be interested in her. And it turns out she was kind of digging me too. It's like, oh, hey, things are working out. Well, we started dating. 
And, you know, we were together for six weeks. And compared to the two days in the fifth grade, this was like, let's buy the house, get married, let's go. <laughs> I, and I was making all these plans. I said, God does love me. This is, we're going to make this all work out. But then, under the watchful eye of Mickey Mouse on a manicured lawn, she said those words we've all heard before, probably. Uh, we need to talk. It's, 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 it's not you, it's me. I know. So I've had such a sad, sorry life, haven't I? Well, I was devastated. And the story gets even worse. Who did she break up? Or why did she break up for me? She wanted to date a woman. I know. Let me tell you. We know Romans 8, 28. What does God say? For God works all things for good, those who are called according to his purpose. I have gotten a lot of free beers by telling that story. <laughs> God certainly works good. It all works out. It all works out in the end. But you can imagine what this did to me. I thought to myself, wow, I am so unworthy as a man that she would rather date a woman than me. Now, that's a lie from the pit of hell, right? But I believed it. I believed it. And I was so hurt and so filled with pain, I said, I'm never going to date a woman again. I put all my energies in the trombone. And, and how did I salve my loneliness? It was pornography. Nobody knew about this. I didn't feel I could tell anybody about any of this. I felt so lonely and isolated. Pornography closes us in. And I felt I couldn't tell anybody about the fact that I was thinking about men. I felt very alone, didn't know where to turn. And maybe some of you feel that way as well. So what did I do? I put all my energies in the trombone. And, and at the end of a, a bachelor's in trombone performance, at the end of a master's in trombone performance, I got a job. And I, I fulfilled my dream and all my focus. And I looked around and I said, I'm very lonely. Is this the plans God has to prosper me, not to harm me, plans to give me hope in the future? I need more in my life than just a job, a job I love, no doubt about it. And so I really was wrestling with God, and I started to think that God is not a loving father. I thought he was an ogre and a cruel God. And I struggled with this. I had this secret addiction. I had no attraction to women. And finally, one day, I said, I've had enough with God. I'm going to turn my back on him. Now, I could not accept the fact that, that uh, God approved of homosexuality and, and same-sex relationships. That would have done too much injury to my intellect. I, I tried to read these theologians that said it's OK, and it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. I also couldn't accept that God doesn't exist. That would have done injury to my to my brain to look around in the sky. I just went and saw that solar eclipse down in Tennessee. I, I was able to see that. The, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. That's for sure. Every night and every day, I thought, no, this didn't happen by accident. So I made a conscious effort to turn my back on God. And I said, I don't care if, if I'm going to risk damnation or hell, because I feel like I'm living in hell already. And so with a, a drive by this basilica in town where I flipped at the bird, I went and found a man to finally have 
what I always wanted to have. I had, a, had finally found a man to have sex with. I was 32 years old. I had saved myself for this woman, this wife that God was supposed to bring to me. And so finally, at age 32, I, I picked, plucked the forbidden fruit and have found it to be empty. The forbidden fruit always is. God actually says no to us, not because he's mean, but because he loves us. He loves us. And, and that moment was not some sort of earth-shattering moment. No, I felt, I felt horrible. I said, what have I done? What have I just done? And I was filled with remorse over it. But that remorse didn't bring me back to God. I, I decided that what the problem was is that it was this sort of anonymous thing. I said, no, I, I'm going to have some sort of normalcy in my life. So I went in search of a man to share my life with. And after a long search, I found him. And we dated. We did normal things. We went to a movie. We had dinner. We were together for a year. And I thought, well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. And I was. I had somebody to talk to. So I had a bad day at work. Hey, call him up. Call up Jason. How's it going? We hang out. We had a good time together. But of course, we were also unchaste. And I didn't care about that. But I see now, I look back on this relationship, there was a lot of good in that relationship, but it was a distorted version of friendship. What I really longed for was deep and close intimacy with another man. And when we were hanging out, just hanging out, playing video games, watching a movie, that was all good. But we went beyond the bounds of what is really good and healthy between two men. I was blind to that at that point. But in my blindness, I thought this is who I was. At this point, I had no attraction to, to women, and I had put a stake in the ground. I'm gay. I'm ready to come out to my family and uh, my coworkers, and we're going to share our life together. And then something happened that kind of rocked the boat. Some guy at work was trying to set me up with a woman. Well, he didn't know about this because I hadn't come out publicly. He kept bugging me. Dan, I think you'd get along great with him. No. No, I won't, trust me. I'm not, it's not going to work. But I couldn't put him off anymore, so I, I said, well, let's go to this Christmas party. I'll, I'll meet her. So I go there, and I meet her, and bam, wow, she's cute. How did this happen? This is not supposed to happen. I had not been attracted to a woman at all. I had gone on a research expedition, actually, to test this out to a strip club. I can't recommend that. <laughs> Dr. Scott Hahn would... Kick me off the campus. <laughs> I was so desperate, though, to have this hope and dream that I actually went to a strip club. I said, well, maybe an in-the-flesh in woman could actually stir something within me. So I go there, and I sit down, and she waltzes over, scantily clad. I said, no, eh, not doing anything. Some Neanderthal bouncer comes over. You know, a gentleman buys a lady a drink. And I ended up buying a $20 Pepsi for her. You know, of course, these strip clubs, a gentleman's club? No, it's not a gentleman's club, right? Here we are in just this horrible den. I'm sitting here with this woman that I have no attraction to. And you know what? We start talking about the weather. We start talking about, uh, I, I have no interest in her. And I said, what are you, what are you doing later today? Well, I can't wait till I get home. And I'm going to, oh, what are you going to do? Well, I got my kids. I got to pick them up. And we're, I'm going to go garden. Oh, you like gardening? We start talking gardening in a strip club. And I tell you, I found out she likes heirloom tomatoes. I do too. 
And I got, I got these great tips for freezing vegetables from this stripper on I-94 near Chicago that I still use today. We're gonna write a book together. What I see in that moment now, there was something beautiful about this, that here we are, two people broken, two broken children of God who saw each other as people, not as objects. I saw her as she was. She saw me as I was. And so there's this dignity that's in us that calls to us even in these horrible places. And so please pray for her. Please pray for that stripper. She had a horrible life. That's what brought her there. And the pain and the wounds of my life, that's what brought me there. Everybody who goes to a strip club is looking for Jesus. That's the honest truth. They're looking for Jesus. Everything I did was I was looking for Jesus. I didn't know. So all that to say, after the, the gardening experience in the strip club, I didn't have any tracks of women. So, so this woman comes along, and I'm blown over by that I'm attracted to her. And I start thinking, well, maybe God does love me. But I was struggling, struggling with this. What am I going to do? Because I'm in love with Jason. And yet meeting this woman brought back all these dreams of having a family. And so I remember pulling Jason aside. I wanted to tell him everything. We, had an op- we were being open about everything. And I said, Jason, I don't know what to do here. What do I do with this? We sat there and he says, you know what? I know how much you've longed to be a father and have a family. And I know that you once did have attractions to women. And if you can have that, Dan, I want you to have it. So I'm going to let you go. Well, what is that? What a Christ-like act of love that was. Here I'm in this gay relationship, right? Living a life of sin. Well, you know what? I want you to look at your friends and, and the people out there who are in these same-sex relationships and realize that they have their dignity of being a child of God still calls to them. And in that moment, Jason did a Christ-like act of love. He laid down his life and his hopes for me. It's remarkable. So please pray for Jason, too. Jason is, is, hasn't come back to the church or at all. He's kind of lost. I, we still stay in touch. But I want you to really think about these people not as people who are living that life, but broken children of God, just like you're broken. We're all broken. So with Jason's blessing, I started to uh, pursue her with a lot of trepidation. But it turned out we got along. And that kind of rocked the world, too. What does this mean? I'm supposed to be a gay guy. Am I bisexual? Wait, what? No, I don't. When I was with her, I wasn't really interested in men. You know, what, what, is this, what are these divisions that we have? What does it mean? All I know is I enjoy being with her, and I love her. And I realize I want to share my life with her. And we were together for a year and a half, and I thought, well, this is God's answer to all my hopes and dreams and my longings. God does love me. But there was a problem. The problem was is that she didn't want to have any kids. And what are we going to do? So we took some time off. Now, I thought after a year and a half of dating her that I had suddenly turned into a ladies' man. That didn't happen. It was her. It was her who I loved with all my heart. And after about a year apart, I I said, 
you know, I don't care about hypothetical kids over here. I wasn't Catholic at the time. I care about her. And so I bought a ring, not a wedding uh, engagement ring, but a really nice ring with a bunch of diamonds. And I had flowers delivered at precisely 115. And I brought food from uh, this favorite restaurant of ours. They knock on the door down there. I'm so nervous and I'm scrambling to get the ring. And she, she comes up and stunned with the flowers. And she says, damn, what's this all about? And I say, Kelly, I just love you so much. I want to share the rest of my life with you. I don't care if we don't have kids. It's you I love. Hear the clock on the wall. It says, Dan, I can't accept the ring. I moved on. I'm dating somebody else. I know. Don't you want the story to turn out right there? <laughs> that was the most painful day of my life. And probably the best day of my life. I look back at it now. I, mean, I drove back from there, and I was weeping and sobbing. What? How would you allow this? A good God, how would you allow this? This is a good Hallmark movie ending. It should have <laughs> ended this way. If I was writing the story, Lord, it would be a pretty good ending right here. But God is the divine author of our lives, and he has far better plans in store for us. Remember what I said earlier? We can only ever imagine being happy the way we imagine being happy. God, God has plans for us to prosper us and not to harm us, plans to give us a hope and a future. Well, I decided to live in that. I, I could have gone back to, to, to Jason or somebody else. I could have lived in that, but I said, no, I'm going to live in this. And I started reading about suffering. Why would God allow these things in my life? I read The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis, a beautiful book, Making Sense of Suffering by Peter Kraft. Craft, craft, craft. We're gonna find out at the at the the, the second coming how to pronounce his name. <laughs> Nobody knows. It's a divine mystery. That was the third secret of Fatima. <laughs> Y'all get my Catholic jokes. Then I ran into this thing called Salvifici Dolores by St. John Paul II, his, his encyclical on suffering. And what I read there made sense of my life because he said suffering in a way is a privation of a good, something that we should have that we've either been deprived of or we've deprived ourselves of that. And I started to view my same-sex attraction through that lens. What is it really? It's a privation of the good of experiencing my true sexual orientation towards women. I don't have a sexual orientation towards men. I have a sexual disorientation. That's what I live with. Now, I wasn't, wasn't Catholic, but here I am reading some Catholic stuff. And as soon as you start reading some really good Catholic stuff, you're going to become Catholic. <laughs> so I, I kept coming across this, this crazy verse that Catholics Looks through Colossians 1.24, which St. Paul says, I complete what is lacking in Christ's suffering in my own afflictions for your sake. What? As a Protestant, that made no sense. But I kept running into this idea of redemptive suffering because I thought to myself, there is so much suffering in the world, and I've suffered a lot. 
Protestants, all they have to say is that it's a test. It's a test of your faith. No, it's an invitation to be joined with the cross of Christ for the salvation of the world. Now that's exciting. And that makes sense. That makes sense. Why would God allow so much suffering in the world? So that we might save the world. So I started thinking about all of my life, homosexuality through that lens, and I started writing and writing and writing. And my godparents heard about it. Now, I was baptized Catholic. I told you that I was Protestant, but I was baptized Catholic, had First Communion, but my family met some scripture-toting Protestants that sucked them away from the Catholic Church for a while. And I'm grateful in a way because I do know the scriptures. I love the Word of God. That's all I had as a Protestant. But that really did feed me. But I didn't know the fullness of the faith. So my whole family left the Catholic Church. And by this point in my life, the whole family was back in the Catholic Church, and they were trying to suck me into the vortex. <laughs> and I wasn't ready to go. But my godparents, hearing that I was writing a book, they said, well, you know, we could take you to this Courage Conference that's happening. Now, Courage, you heard about at the beginning. It's a ministry for people like me with same-sex attraction. And uh, they said, well, maybe you could meet somebody there who would help you publish your book. They were sneaky. <laughs> so I went there, and I had a big old backpack filled with all these notebooks, and I'm trudging along at Villanova. Definitely not a college student. Very, I, was, I was 38 at this time. And I, had no, I was just going to be an observer and talk to some people. And I go to the first mass there at Villanova. Now, I had been going to a big old... Uh, uh, mega church. I was flirting with God a little bit still through this. Went to a converted warehouse where they had a Starbucks in the corner and people are, you know, they got a rock band up there. This is, this is church, okay? And I, go, I show up at this beautiful chapel in Villanova. I don't know if any of you have been there. I'm sure you have. And the organ starts pumping out the sounds. The incense is in the air. There's a cavalcade of deacons and priests and bishops. And at the end, there's this cardinal Who's this guy? It was beautiful. I was just blown away by the beauty of it. And the voices of those men and women encouraged singing praise to God. I was blown away by the joy that they exuded. And so somewhere along the way, I looked around and I said, I belong here. This is where I belong. And I, I, the first person I told was Cardinal Regali. And I go up to him and I said, you know what? Cardinal, your eminence, your highness, <laughs> your honor. I don't know what people say, but I, I'd say, I, I, I'm coming back to the Catholic Church. I just decided. And he was the father. I was the prodigal son. He was the father who welcomed me home. And I got a chance to see him earlier this summer. It was a really beautiful moment. But he was the first person I told, and he said, well, God is good, isn't he? He loves us, and he's always drawing us to himself. And then I told my godparents, and they were ecstatic, as you could imagine. And then I told my brother, now he's a priest. It's if you've been away from the Catholic Church for 30 years, it's handy having a brother who's a priest. <laughs> so I called him up. I said, Steve, I I'm coming back to the Catholic Church. What do I do? And he says, well, you had First Communion. You just go have a good confession, and you can have the Eucharist the next day. So I go, I go that night. There's nothing more beautiful in all the church in my mind, than a courage conference and especially confession and mass. You have this beautiful room. There's a dozen priests in there, different corners. Somebody's playing music. And people are just 
bearing their souls and going to the great physician and having their, their, the wounds of their soul healed. And I found this kindly priest, and he just walked me through it. 30 years of all the things, all those doubts, all those shames, all the mistaken things I did. And he said those wonderful words by the ministry of the church. We all know him. I absolve you of, those, of your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That was a spiritual bath. I have never felt more happy and alive than at that moment. Woo. Amen. <laughs> and then there was the next day. I felt a little happier then. Because I, 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 I go to Mass, and I, I had met some people, and I was talking to them. I was going to sit with them. But then I saw my godparents at the end of the last row there. And they said, they motioned over to me, damn, why don't you come sit with us? And suddenly they said, they said to me, they said, uh, hey, would you like to carry up the gifts? Now I'm looking around for the Toys for Tots display. <laughs> what, are we, what are we doing, a Christmas tree <laughs> gathering here? I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what the gifts were. And then they explained it to me. And it dawned on my godparents and me that here we are, after all my time as a prodigal son, God orchestrated my steps that I would be late, but I would sit next to my godparents who were there at my baptism, and we would carry the body, the, the bread and the wine that would become the body and blood of Christ, that would become the first time in 30 years that I've partaken of the Eucharist. Now, if anyone wants to know if God has plans to prosper me and not to harm me, they just need to hear that story. My life changed. I had an appointment with God that day, and my life has changed. All my doubts and my fears, my worries, I realize now God says no to me because he loves me. And the, all I want to do the rest of my life is tell people who are starving and hungry and thirsty, I want to tell them where the living water is. And I want to shout from the mountaintops of the world, if you live with sexual identity confusion, if you live with same-sex attraction, if you think you're gay, lesbian, I'm getting all fired up here. <laughs> If you think that the world is the answer to you, no. The commandments of God lead to the blessed life. And he says no to us because he loves us. We have to have confidence that what God has orchestrated in our lives and designed for us in human sexuality is good news for our lost and confused world. So thank you for having me here. And I hope I've given you encouragement to go out there and be bold in the belief that the good news you have is really what's going to bring peace and freedom to all of your friends who identify as gay, lesbian, or something else. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.